You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater. And I am, sorry, that was so dramatic. It's okay, we're going to keep it. I'm Daniel Janine. I'm a producer at Eater. Amanda, we are leading it off with Ryan Sutton, Eater New York critic, talking about whether it's cool right now to eat in restaurants. We talked to Matthew Kang, Eater LA editor, about Moldgate. Bet you can't guess what that is. And then we talked to an Irish food writer about Americans crashing the party at Irish restaurants. Uh, should we just... All that and more. And a little more. Coming up. Coming on up. On Eater's Digest. <laughs> well, let's get into it. <laughs> All right, Dan, so the major thing I'm thinking about this week is dining out in the world, the ethics of it. I have done it. I did it twice in New York, three times in New Hampshire. I know you have not. I know it's like ethically a little sticky. So I wanted to bring on Ryan Sutton, our chief critic in New York, who has written about why he feels uncomfortable dining out. And I want to talk about some of the reasons there. So Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Amanda, and and thanks for having me, Dan. Tell us about the big major reasons why you don't feel comfortable yet um, dining outside or, of course, inside a restaurant. Great question. Uh, And you're right. I haven't dined out uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, I think like a lot of people, uh, outdoor dining and even indoor dining seemed like a very real possibility uh, to me uh, for a while. Um, and then one of the big things that happened, of course, over the past few months is the, uh, the viral resurgence across the country, which has a lot of us worried, um, and the fact that, uh, deaths are still upticking throughout the com- country. So that's one big reason, you know, as it's almost a bromide to state at this point that, you know, viruses don't stop at borders. We all know that. Um, but it's all the more pressing and true, uh, in a world where, you know, again, 136 or 7,000 Americans have died already. Uh, the other kind of more, uh, short-term, uh, or structural reason why I'm not dining out just yet is that I, I just don't believe that New York, um, has, uh, as strict health requirements, uh, as it could or should, you know, when you look through the state guidance, um, uh, I believe, and I truly believe that diners should be able to, or should have to wear masks while, Uh, they're not actively eating or drinking while they're sitting at the tables. And currently in the legislation or the regulations, you don't have to do it. You you look at any restaurant, the second you sit down, people take off their masks. And I just, that's, you know, not fair to the waiters. Uh, A couple of other things in terms of, you know, the the rules, uh, you don't have, you're not required to leave your contact information uh, in case, you know, contact tracers end up needing it. Uh, I think that could change. Uh, Neither employees uh, nor uh, diners, I believe, uh, have to take mandatory um, temperature screenings, according to the state. I think that should be mandatory as well. And of course, there's just the state of testing. You know, it just takes like a, a week sometimes to get a test back. Uh, they're not widespread enough, and they're not mandatory on a regular basis for restaurant workers. So I, again, I'm not saying that I'm not going to eat outside again uh, until there's a vaccine. Um, but I, I like to think that we could and maybe should wait until the, the surge decreases a little bit. And, and New York does a better job at creating more uniform regulations for everyone. Right. So do you take into account, like if you were deciding to eat in different, let's say you did live in different areas, do you think it is a more of a moral choice to do it in New York where cases are down versus obviously in like Orlando or Los Angeles right now? I think you just made the argument right there, Amanda. Uh, Absolutely. Um, Again, while I'm not doing this uh, just yet, dining out, either indoors or outdoors, uh, I have no doubt that if you are a person uh, who's who's ready for this and you're willing to take those risks or put others at at risk, I know that sounds awful, but uh, I would say that New York is probably a a better place to dine outdoors than a few other places in the country. Um, And the reason I say that is because, again, because our viral load right now is so uh, is so low. Uh, I go on to the New York uh, positive 
test site every day. Uh, I think right now, New York positive tests are coming back at a ratio of like 1.3% on a, on a day or a mm-hmm. three day or a seven day basis, whatever they use. So things are okay in New York. Um, that's not to say that you can predict whether one person from California is going to come here and decide to eat out, even though the California people are supposed to be under a 14 day quarantine, you know, that, that's tough to enforce. But that said, uh, if you were to go out, uh, I, I like to think that New York City is a better place to do it than, than quite frankly, few other places in the country. Right. Well, and there, I mean, there are places, you know, if you look at the map, you see some places where they don't really have a lot of cases. Like where I was in New Hampshire, the area had had no cases. But then I think you can lead to this complacency. And the mask wearing there was very lax. So you could go to a restaurant and people just like the the restaurants were behaving themselves, but so many of the people just did not want to be doing it. And we hear about this all over the country. And I think it is so case by case in terms of the region and even the restaurant as to how safe or unsafe you're going to be. And it's always heartwarming to hear about, you know, restaurants that are being more aggressive than what federal laws require. Um, uh, I've you know heard cases of restaurants that are doing temperature screenings anyway uh, for both mm-hmm. um, employees and for and for guests as well, and I, th- I think that's a, a positive development in that, and it shows those restaurants care uh, about you know our our larger society, uh, which is hugely important. Yeah, I think with temperature checks, my take is you're not going to go out if you have a fever, but I think it does signal this level of care and responsibility that we take this very seriously. We are doing this thing every day and it makes the employees think about it every day. It makes the diner think about like, remember, we are not just playing around here. This is not just entertainment. This is real. Precisely. And uh, I'd also, first of all, I agree with you. You're probably not going to go outside if you have a fever, but I won't lie as someone, you know, who has, you know, dealt with this as, as a few of us have. Um, sometimes you simply don't know. I remember when I you know, had COVID-19 back in, in March, uh, I was walking around one day and I thought I was perfectly fine. Then I bought a thermometer and it said 101. Wow. A little bit of a fever. And I think that was just because, you know, my temperature had been so high in the previous days that I 101 fever to me didn't even register. And yeah. so right. that, that was a signal to me that I should stay inside and continue to consume Gatorade en masse, which I did. Wow. That's a good point too, that, that you had it because since I had it, I feel like a little bit of a not a free pass. I'm still behaving myself, but I feel a little less stressed about the idea of getting someone else sick. And I think it's important that you said, you've written that you went through it. It was awful. You don't want to, I don't know, have any bit of risk of bringing this kind of thing to anyone else. Yeah. um, And I I won't lie, Amanda, like you, maybe in the, in the weeks after, and it uh, let the record state, I didn't even know I truly had it until maybe a month or two after when it was confirmed via antibody test. Um, but I too, uh, in the right after, it felt like I had a bit of a free pass. Um, but then again, you know, we have to realize that you know we're not epidemiologists. You know, we're we're journalists, and you know, excuse the term, but we don't know what we don't know. Um, and it would be, you know, it, one of the things I think about a lot is that as a food critic, uh, am I setting the right example for other people, uh, either as a food critic or as a food reporter? And uh, if I decided to go out um, because I've already had COVID and because I think I can't do that again, and because people know publicly that I've had COVID, would that create uh, a license for other people to take that same risk? So I'm trying to be extra careful about what type of you know license I I give people because you know as you know the as the saying goes, you know president doesn't wear masks, his followers don't wear masks. And in as much as we're food writers and we give recommendations, um, people see us and, and people will follow uh, our own takes as well. So I, we all, of course, need to be extra careful about that. Amanda, I hate to put you on the spot here, but as Ryan's as, as yeah. Ryan says that he, uh, you know, he's, he's obviously he's had it, um, but yet he feels a responsibility as a public figure in, in the dining community, in the food world to, I guess, lead by example. Um, do you feel like there is pressure on you, even as someone that does have the antibodies, to uh, make a statement through, you know, publicly not eating at restaurants, or are you just? Let's see. I feel pressure as uh, as someone who writes and talks about food a lot to, you know, think through my decisions mm-hmm. for sure. I don't feel pressure that I have to not eat at restaurants and the morality police is going to come get me. I think what I can do is as, as someone who is eating out, 
model safer behavior and model middle ground. Like I don't, I don't necessarily believe the same as Ryan. Like I'm that I'm only going to do. I do think he's probably right in <laughs> yeah. this, <laughs> but I do. Th- I think a lot of the times with COVID, there's this um, binary point of view of staying inside is safe, going out is unsafe. And I think there's a sliding scale and there is a way to be more responsible while also getting a little back into not a normal life, but a, a different life. Yeah. So there are, I've seen a lot of hybrid operations where you order at the window, almost the same interaction you would have with the staff as takeout, but then you get to go sit and eat it outside, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a step up from me eating it in the park. Yeah. Um, but maybe I have access to the bathroom in case I drink a little too nice. much. And then there are restaurants that are, you know, it is waiter service, but everyone is being very good about the masks and that's a little more risky. And then you see these pictures from out in New York where people are just totally going hog wild. Um, yeah. So like that's, and like, that's and like partying, really partying. And so I think there is a spectrum of behaviors and ways that you can fit yourself in there. But I will say that my position on it evolves the more I read about it because, you know, Gary, he on Eater New York has been doing interviews with servers and talking to them and hearing how so many of them don't really feel safe. Right. And like talking to restaurant owners in my neighborhood and asking them like, how are your employees feeling? How are you feeling? And so my position on this is not strict and might wobble as I learn more. Right. I I think we're all learning more. And uh, I think it was what you said was uh, incredibly nuanced and, and, and there is a spectrum of behaviors. And I'm I'm also glad you brought up Gary. He is excellent reporting uh, for Eater New York um, in which we learned that, you know, a lot of waiters, you know, wish they could be staying home. Um, uh, earning their, you know, six hundred dollar uh, per week uh, pandemic unemployment assistance checks, uh, but sometimes they get called back, and sometimes they're ineligible, of course, because they're undocumented, um, and uh, that's a whole nother debate. And you know, all fingers crossed that um, those checks will continue throughout the rest of the year. But of course, that's up to Congress and uh, and a much more complicated uh, scenario. Um, but if I can also bring up one more point, Amanda, you brought up the issue of. Um, what do we make of institutions or restaurants um, that are essentially takeout but have tables outside uh, where there's no wait service? And I, in my opinion, I haven't done it yet, but I probably will. That is something I would feel comfortable with. And I, right, that's like the next step. Yeah, and I think the Contra and Wild Air guys are are doing that, and that's something I'm I'm pretty uh, stoked to try out. So Ryan, you wrote a, a piece uh, I think out, outlining a lot of this why, why this restaurant critic isn't dining out right now. Um, I hate to re- reduce the reaction to this piece, but I felt like, at least in the media world, uh, this was pretty well accepted as the consensus amongst other prominent critics in the country. Uh, what was the reaction like from what from people that work in restaurants and people that own restaurants? Uh, about what you could expect. Uh, that was the reaction. Uh, I had some, I don't want to you know name names. Uh, uh, I could think of a, a chef, and or general manager or two uh, yeah. who were publicly unhappy uh, with some of the things I, I wrote. And I understand that everyone's trying to make a living uh, and there are a lot of good actors out there uh, who are trying to look out for their staffs. Um, the flip side is I heard from a, a lot of mm-hmm. people who are you know waiters uh, and who are restaurant industry uh, folks um, who wish viewpoints like this uh, uh, continued uh, to be promulgated, you know, throughout the country uh, because they want to stay home and they want to keep earning their unemployment checks. And they want to, uh, when people sign up for the restaurant industry, they didn't expect to be signing up for a job where they could reasonably get killed as if they were joining the military or the police or the, or, or firefighters. Um, they were simply hoping uh, to earn a living for themselves and for their families. And I think uh, those people in the industry and, and people who have been emailing me are, are seriously worried about their lives and, and, and livelihoods. Uh, in addition to be worrying about the, the future of the uh, industry, which they care about both economically and culturally. And so that, that would be the overwhelming mm-hmm. response of, you know, the things I've heard of people who have, who have touched base with me. Um, but, you know, I've also heard from, you know, uh, some IAs and, and, uh, and, 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 and people who are not on, you know, full salary who are, who disagree with me. These, these are complicated issues upon which reasonable people disagree and, and no one has a monopoly on either the economic truth or the, or the moral truth. We're all trying to, you know, responsibly think about these, these issues out loud. Well, and it's so interesting because 
because government is not stepping in and setting the rule of like, okay, you'll have to shut down and we're going to pay you. Like in other countries, they paid the businesses to shut down and they're, they're paying the employees. It puts the obligation on the owners and on the staffers and then on us to make these decisions that I feel like we should not be having to make in this moment. 100%. And the decision uh, to have people stay at home, especially waiters, would be so much easier if there was a better federal program uh, to subsidize or bail out, for lack of a better term, restaurant owners uh, and landlords. You know, it's, it's easy to demonize, demonize landlords. Uh, a lot of them are just small family businesses that are hurting as much as, as anyone else. Um, and yet the, the, the chief government lifeline to small business, known as the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, the central theme of that program is to keep people on payrolls and employed, which is precisely the opposite of what we want uh, during a, a devastating pandemic. Right. Uh, you either want those people to stay at home. Um, and so we have some serious structural issues with government and aid, both in terms of the way that program was designed and the fact that it's only tied uh, the program, you can't get more than two and a half months of payroll. That's how much of the loan you can get. And, and hopefully, if you do the right things, the loan turns into a grant. Uh, that's not a whole lot. That's two and a half months for a pandemic and, and restaurant and bar shutdowns that are stretching much longer than that. And when they designed that program, people didn't think that indoor dining would be completely shut down in certain states uh, for the indefinite future. We don't know when that's coming back. And so that's hugely uh, economically devastating uh, to small business owners uh, who are trying to uh, restart these establishments that are vital hubs of the community. So yes, there's a health and, and moral component, but you know these you know, there's also right. that that cultural and societal component of you know trying to restart society, um, and and they're also looking out for their own economic health. A lot of these small business owners. So yeah, there's there's no one right or easy answer, but things would be a lot better if the government spent a little more time yeah. talking to restaurants when designing these programs. How much are you thinking about the division between outdoor dining and indoor dining? Because for me, like that seems like the the barrier that a lot of the states that are in huge trouble have crossed, right? Like even even states that opened at minimum uh, minimal capacity, 25, 50%, it feels like allowing people to uh, congregate inside is a signal that lets big parties happen and lets big kind of bar exchanges happen. Well, and also just the greater danger of indoor dining, even if people aren't partying right. inside, just that it can spread there in a way that it's not going to inside. Outside. Yeah. And I'm just saying like in a perfect world, it seems to the case that 25% capacity indoors with safe, uh, you know, safe distancing would be okay. But it just seems like an impossible that specifically seems like an impossible thing to enforce therefore it seems to me that like the boundary bef between the in and the out is like where a lot of states have had to make the hard and fast rule and i feel like to me makes sense as a as a place to draw the line I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, and we also learned recently that it's possible that this virus is is truly airborne. Again, we're not epidemiologists or virologists, and we can't prove that. But, you know, a lot of scientists recently sent a letter to the World Health Organization uh, arguing for more recognition of the possibility of airborne transmission. And one of the, the big cases that those scientists cite uh, is the fact of a, of a restaurant. Uh, we all saw the, the, the diagrams right. of the restaurant and people who are sitting at tables reasonably far apart from one another uh, got infected because apparently, uh, according to these scientists, you know, droplets of the virus can uh, remain in the air for a, a certain period of time. So who, who knows if social distancing in itself, uh, six feet or one meter or whatever you want to call it, is enough in itself. Yeah, I just don't see how indoor dining and bars that are inside can reopen until there's a vaccine, if this is true. And it seems the evidence is mounting. And and, and if that's true, what does that uh, that say about the, the federal government's lack of response to, to giving more aid? Um, because if this huge portion of our economy is going to remain uh, more or less closed for the uh, unforeseeable future, then uh, we're going to continue to see hundreds of thousands, if not millions of restaurants continue to, uh, and restaurant workers uh, continue to be unemployed. And you know they need help and they need help now. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for talking to us about this important thing. I think it's on the minds of most of our listeners. So I, I love to hash it out. Um, and please enjoy a nice, relaxing week on vacation. Uh, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Dan. I'll see you guys soon. Amanda, I feel like 
strangely, the biggest news this week, maybe, has been about moldy jam. Uh, so mm-hmm. we brought on Matthew Kang, the editor of Eater LA, to, to, to tell us how this has taken the internet and the food world by storm. Matthew, welcome to the show. Hi. So this all comes back to Squirrel, the legendary Los Angeles breakfasty restaurant. Can you, what, what's going on? Yeah, so let's talk about Squirrel. <laughs> uh, you know, I think you New Yorkers uh, love Squirrel even more than we do. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly a very cool restaurant. Uh, Squirrel is a breakfast and lunch place that opened about eight years ago in a neighborhood called Virgil Village. It was sort of a little uh, lovely little place um, that Squirrel essentially, quote unquote, put on the map. And uh, Jessica Coslow started out as a jam maker. Uh, I remember seeing her jams in, in retail stores and wine bar, uh, shops back in the day. Um, but she opened this cafe with the intention of sort of expanding beyond the jam game and a sort of restaurant concept is not necessarily new in Australia. It's really popular where we have these daytime cafes that have avocado toast and, and, um, bowls and stuff like that. But I think she sort of brought that and, and really popularized those foods in LA and squirrel became arguably the most popular modern restaurant in Los Angeles history restaurant history. Uh, It captured the imagination of people uh, because it was the sort of representation of California cool, you know, fresh ingredients, easy going, laid back sorrel pesto rice bowls and lacto fermented hot sauce. Like just all these, you know, buzzwords that like millennial food people just love, you know, we, we, we ate that ate that up. And um, so what had happened uh, earlier this week was that a photo surfaced of uh, basically mold and jam in this huge bucket. Uh, it, it definitely looked like the whole top of this bucket of jam had just been permeated by mold. And, and then Coslo came out and sort of tried to justify it saying, you know, it's not unlike mold on salami or dry aged beef or, or cheese, you know, we just scrape off the top. I've been told by a microbiologist that this is okay. So she sort of justified it and it just lit a storm across the internet where people were totally horrified by the image and also questioned that approach of like, Hey, um, it's okay to scrape mold off of the top of jam uh, and then serve it to people. And this was kind of her, one of her signature products. Like she sells very expensive jam all around the country. And one of her most Instagram dish is this toast covered in jam. So it's, it's, she's kind of synonymous with jam. Well, That's yeah. How she started. And, and she started out selling these jars at like 12 to 14 bucks for tiny. They're very small. I mean, they're like, I mean, it feels like I can, I personally could go through it in three days or less, you know, and it's 14 bucks. She would talk about the provenance of the fruits, you know, their farmer's market, blah, 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 like expensive ingredients and then charge that. And then, and then like basically have, uh, say that, oh, I just scrape it off and, and, and it's fine. So it's definitely become this thing that we've sort of labeled like mold gate. People have called it jam gate, like gate, squirrel gate. I don't even know. <laughs> and the idea is the jam. This was the, so it wasn't the jar jam. This was the jam that she was serving in the restaurant, right? Because it was made in the secondary, unlicensed, poorly ventilated kitchen space. So in her defense, she was saying that, uh, and she has issued a subsequent statement saying that the jam that was quote unquote molded was never served uh, or placed into the packaged jam. Those were prepared in a hot packed method that supposedly is much safer and uh, makes it shelf stable. She said this, like, I would never serve anything I don't eat myself, you know? So she's like, I I have no problem taking it, you know, eating a little bit of this molded jam that's been scraped. um, And it was just for the restaurant. It wasn't something that was in the, in the jars, but yeah, like you were saying, Dan, like this is, it was an indicator of other issues, including an unlicensed kitchen. Um, And so the story behind that was that Squirrel is on the corner of this building in Virgil Village, and she had taken over the next door space, and she had announced like probably in 2015, so just three years after she originally opened, that she was planning on opening another concept there. Uh, And the thing is, 
that space was never was like permitted, but it was never like approved and licensed. And so what had happened was she sort of kept it a secret from the health department. She admits that she never told the health department about the secondary kitchen, um, which was right next to Squirrel. And she was saying um, she was basically using it as a preparation area for Mm -hmm. her restaurant, you know, just to have extra space for for food prep. Um, But her employees allege that, you know, they would be shut in there during surprise inspections and, um, you know, that, that, that they brought up uh, concerns with the health department saying, Hey, this place isn't licensed. It's not ventilated. It's not an, it's not an official approved kitchen. Well, since then, uh, since 2018, uh, Coslo has said that the, the space is, is licensed and permitted and uh, has an A grading from the health department. But there was a gap in about, about a three-year gap there where it seemed like it was not fully legal. <laughs> right. And, and now employees are saying that they were even yeah, locked in there and that it was unsafe for yeah, them. The, I, yeah. I mean, those, these are allegations. Um, you know, they were saying right. that, that it was windowless. And, and uh, I mean, most kitchens are windowless. My, <laughs> from my understanding, but yeah, sort of this like, and just also in fairness, like, you know, shooting a video, working in some kitchens and shooting videos in a lot of kitchens, uh, most kitchens have at least a small area that they're hiding from the health department in some way, right? Like if it's a fridge that they're not supposed to have, or even like a, a sous vide machine that they're using, uh, off hours, yeah, I can report to this as a former, you know, food operator space. Like that, not. It's just there's a there's a disconnect between what is technically licensed and permitted by the health department versus like when once you open the restaurant, then you can do a bunch of stuff to it. You can add a fridge, like you were saying. You can you can use extra space that's supposed to be a storage closet, and then you're like, you know what? I'm gonna just put food in there. Or I'm gonna put uh, there, bags yeah. of rice in there. So. So, yeah, I mean, it does get questionable, but I think in this case, she, Kozlo admitted that, like, she shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't have hidden this space from the health department, kept it a secret. She's ashamed. Yeah. She admits that she's ashamed of it. And since then, it's been approved and is now legal to use. The the criticisms about the mold and the kitchen have led to much bigger criticisms about the general way in which she runs her business and, uh employees, former employees are alleging that she took credit for their work in, in many different Yeah. I mean, and this is part of, uh, a, the last 48 hours of my consciousness essentially where, uh, Farley Elliott, um, the deputy editor at Eater LA has been working on a long form report talking about all the various issues, discussing the allegations and also allowing Kozla to respond to those allegations. But I think it does essentially start with a, a system that is hierarchical, that is based on uh, a, sometimes a collaboration of ideas that essentially percolate up. And, you know, the, the figurehead, the, the head chef, the, the chef, executive chef gets all the glory and all the credit. And it's been part of the restaurant uh, scene for, I don't know, time immemorial, right, where uh, the, the ideas of recipes and dishes um, never really get attributed to the person who came up with the idea. It, it basically becomes the credit of the executive chef. And this is something that like, for example, Grant Atkins told uh, one of his cooks at Alinea, like, Hey, I know you made up this really cool edible balloon, but you know, that's going to be my creation. That's what people are going to think. Just letting you know, which is sort of, you know, that's exploitative and it's, it's not great, but it's just, part of the system, which Kozlo admits to saying, like, I, she's going to examine her part, her role in that and maybe reevaluate. And clearly a lot of her cooks and people that work for her, uh, feel like they've been snubbed in, um, you know, a lot of the, as, as squirrel has grown in fame and glory, like they don't get to share in that. And, and then they have separate allegations of, her basically taking on the mantle of being the chef of Squirrel and they, you know, her former employees will say stuff like she's not a cook. She doesn't know how to cook. She's not a chef. Uh, they'll, they'll say these things. And then at the same time, uh, she'll get nominated for the James Beard Award Best Chef California. So then there's this, there's this disconnect there. And so all these things are sort of playing out. I think, think that there's, it's definitely complex. And I believe that Farley's piece, um, 
does an amazing job when it gets published later today is, uh, is going to do an amazing job of looking at both sides and really examining the complexity. So what do you think the long-term impact on Squirrel will be? Um, I'm really not sure. I, I, I mean, this is just my personal opinion, but I think the, the reading of this long form piece by Farley is going to give an opportunity for people to make, come to their own conclusions about the situation um, where yes, there were allegations, there were people complaining about credit, but at the same time, I think Coslow coming out with some tangible evidence saying, Hey, look on social media posts over the years, I've credited my, my cooks in my cookbook. I, you know, numerous chefs get name checked. They're mentioned in the acknowledgements. And she also says later on in the piece, Hey, could I have done more? Sure. You know, and I, I'm going to examine that. So I, I think people are going to come to a point where they're like, okay, well, as long as I'm not, they're saying there's no more mold, in my jam. And mm-hmm you know, that there's, that everything here is relatively kosher uh, from a food service perspective. I do think some people are going to come back. I think there's the certain diner who's going to read this piece and not go back because of, you know, the credit issues. But I think there are probably more people out there who read her defense of scraping off the mold and maybe will question the restaurant because of that. And so I think that could be a real problem as well. Like her saying the mold was fine. It's, we just scrape it off. And then having food scientists kind of debunk that. I think is a little troubling and it will be troubling for a lot of diners. Yeah. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The next question is also like, how can you give the proper credit? Like the what these people are alleging is pretty extreme in that she would send someone else's recipe to food and wine and their name wouldn't appear on it. But in the in a broader sense, like if you're collaborating in a kitchen, when do you, how can you offer credit for people who helped you create a dish on your menu? Um, you know, I was talking like, to, like, how can you say, I was talking yeah. to a very, I won't say who, but I was talking to a very prominent chef yesterday about this, who kind of was like, you know what? I came up in this system. You just suck it up. You know, you know what you're doing. You're working for somebody and they're just going to take your glory. And if you think you have a great idea, this is what the chef told me. She was like, you hold it back. You're not going to put it on the, uh, you know, on the plate and you're not going to, you're going to leave it for when you're in charge. And I, I was like, man, that's, that sucks. But that is the system. It's, it's messed up. And you're right. Like it's very difficult to like properly attribute. It's not like a movie, like a movie has like a, a thousand people getting credited on the most minute details, but like, in a, in a kitchen on a menu, you can't do that. You can't have five minutes yeah. of credits, you know, attributing every last element. Like, oh, and and the weird thing is, like, Coslow, if you read her cookbook, there are more, there's so many sections about farmers and all the ingredients and who get, how she uh, collects all these ingredients that help make up her menu. And, and then, you know, there's a couple of mentions, there's a couple of clear attributions to, like, this chef helped me make this dish or this chef made this dish, but it's usually just one line. And it's not like something that to really elaborate on because it is difficult to like think, of, look at a plate and go like, all right, so which parts of this came up from which person, you know, like who came up with each part of this dish? It's, it's, it's definitely tricky. And I think this, I, I I'd like to think that with squirrel, um, it's going to be something that more restaurants are going to think about 
and more, I'd like to see more, more on more menus, not just the name of the executive chef or the chef de cuisine on the bottom. Let's put all the line cooks on there. Let's put everyone in the restaurant that had made a difference on your experience as a diner. Why not? You know, I mean, paper's cheap. Let's do it. I like that. We have, we have a masthead. We have a masthead and it lists every single person that works here and what they do. And like, why not list the dishwasher and the line cook? If they are essential to the production of what you're experiencing, I say, why not? And, and some restaurants do it. Rustic Canyon in Santa Monica. Jeremy Fox is really good about literally listing you know, almost everyone on the back of house staff um, so that they get their due and they get their name mentioned. And so that diners can sit there while they're ordering and be like, Hey, you know, this is who's making my food and this is great. I love that. Well, Matthew Kang, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and for working so hard on the story. Thank you to Farley Elliott who reported the story that is now on la.eater.com. Thank you. Thanks. Great to see you. Okay, Amanda, next up on the show, uh, Ireland is one of the few places that Americans can travel to right now. What is it? Ireland, England, Portugal. Portugal. I'm sure there are other places too, but just notably Europe is is banning us. So there's a, the restaurants, again, have become the front lines of dealing with American tourists and uh, it is blowing up a little bit, especially in Ireland. And uh, so we brought Lisa Cope from All the Food to come on and talk to us about it. Hey, Lisa, how are you? Thanks, guys. So, Lisa, tell us what what is going on with the chefs and restaurants in Dublin. So, Americans are coming to Ireland on holidays, and Irish people are losing their shit <laughs> because you know we've been told again and again and again, do not travel, essential travel only. And then last week. A Michelin-starred chef in Galway in the west of Ireland tweeted that a group of Texans had shown up for dinner and they froze. They just didn't know what to do because obviously we know things are not great in the States and Texas is really bad. And he kind of said, you know, this is not up to us to police. Like you're supposed to be doing a 14-day quarantine when you arrive in Ireland. But like how many Americans have that many vacation days to take a 14-day quarantine and then go out and explore Ireland? Like it's clearly not happening. So this is all kicked off from last week. And now people every day are saying, I've seen tourists at this, yeah, Americans at this tourist site, or they were in a restaurant or, you know, they're on a, they're trying to get on a bus and everyone is just freaking out. <laughs> and they are wearing masks or not wearing masks or what's, what is the reporting? A lot of people saying they're not wearing masks. Um, a lot of people saying that they're not taking the quarantine seriously. They didn't realize it was mandatory. They thought it was optional. They went to an airport, one of the news shows here, to interview people getting off planes to America. And, you know, one woman said, oh, I just had to get out of Florida because there's just so much COVID there. I, I just needed to come somewhere where there's not as much COVID. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, my God, you're just not getting this, are you? And he said, I think it was her who said, um, are you going to do the, the mandatory quarantine for 14 days? And she said, yeah, yeah, I am. But I'm not going to even be here for 14 days. I was like, but yeah. like, that doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Oh my God. So I'm like, we have over 2 million Americans coming here every year. Like they're our biggest source of tourist revenue. We love Americans. Americans love us. We've got this very long standing relationship. But at the moment, people are just like, stay in your own country. Like don't come over here when it's so out of control yeah. where you're from. Like don't bring it over here. Like we're, we've really struggled to suppress the virus. We're at a really good position now. We're opening up things again. They've just decided to postpone our final stage of reopening because our reproduction rate's just gone back over one, which, you know, we kind of thought was going to happen because restaurants are reopened and sport is also happening again, things like that. So to have people coming in from, you know, states where like ten, Texas is getting like 10,000 cases a day at, at the moment, to have them just flying in with no kind of mandatory quarantining or no quarantine hotels, people just cannot understand how this is allowed to happen. Has it gotten to the point where restaurants are refusing service or canceling reservations of American diners? Yeah, it is. And this is the thing, they don't know if this is legal, if this is gonna be classed as discriminatory, but there are hotels and there are tour operators and there are restaurants who have said, um, you know, we've had to turn them away either when they've shown up or when the booking has come in. And we've had to say, you know, unless you can provide proof of entry and you can show us you've been here for more than 14 days, we just can't let you in. We can't put our staff at risk and we can't put our guests at risk. But I mean, Jeez. this is going to blow up at some point. Somebody is going to 
lose it and you know I can just see that there being a bad outcome for somebody who refuses service to somebody this is maybe a simple question but like what what is the amongst you and you know people you're hanging out with what what is the perception of like a person from Texas or Florida right now well I mean just in terms of the pandemic that we can't understand how it's just so out of control over there and we're seeing a lot of stuff about you know people giving other people crap for wearing masks and saying that you know you're just trying to scare us and this is all overblown and this is all a hoax and on that radio show they had a guy who just flown from texas saying that you know oh this is this is completely completely overblown you know people are making such a big deal out of this it's just not that big of a deal and you're kind of thinking like where are you getting your news from if you think this is not that big of a deal do you think it will get to a point where ireland like much of europe will start banning americans well, everyone is screaming for this now and everybody is giving politicians like they're getting beaten up on social media every day because the EU as a block um, blocked a lot of countries coming in, including America. Ireland didn't or couldn't because Britain decided to not take part in this ban, even though the EU was hoping that, you know, despite leaving the EU, they would still you know take part in this. We have a passport free travel area with Britain. So because they're not taking part in it, we the policy doesn't apply to us either. So everyone here is kind of shouting at the government now saying, you know, you need to bring in something specifically to deal with this issue of Americans or, you know, South Americans or people coming in from places where we know that it's not under control. They're saying it's not legally enforceable. They're saying that mandatory quarantine hotels don't work. They're citing examples from Australia where you know, clusters actually broke out in quarantine hotels and security guards took it back to their neighborhoods and their families. So they just kind of, I think the communication from them has been quite poor and they're not explaining to people here why Americans can freely travel into Ireland, but why we can't go to America or Americans can't travel to Spain or Greece or Italy or any of these other EU countries. You know, we have this phrase, Cade Mila Falcha, 100,000 welcomes. And somebody said on Twitter, we should change to Cade Mila Feck off just for a year. Like, you know, you just stay where you're from. Let us just stay here. Right. Yeah. People are, are really, really uncomfortable with the idea of people flying in from, from states or from countries where it's just not under control yet. Wow. Wild. Well, good luck to you <laughs> and to your and, country. And and Lisa, where can we uh, where, where can we see your writing? So I run allthefood.ie, which is a guide to eating out in Dublin. So when you guys come to visit, after you've got this stuff all under control, um, log on there and we will tell you where to go and eat. So we'll come in a, in a year, but until then, feck off. Yeah, just stay where you are for the moment. <laughs> all right, will do. Thank you so much, Lisa. Okay, Amanda, we're back. Uh, we're going to wrap it up with a couple of lighter stories from around the world. You know, uh, first up, Big trend right now in the prank world, TikTok, YouTube, for teens to dress up as old women and old people, mm-hmm. I guess, to try to see if they can uh, buy booze from liquor stores. Because cool. the mask gives them an extra layer of protection. So uh, I was going to say, what's new about this? The mask. The mask. Is it a, is it a prank? If you are procuring your own alcohol? It's more about filming it to see if it works. Like, there are still better ways to get booze than going, than than dressing up to the nines, to the 90s of, uh, you know, in, in, in garb. Are there, though? Because I remember this being a central point of being a teenager, and also the central point about movies about being a teenager. It's kind of hard. Yeah. I mean, I kind of hard to procure the alcohol unless you have the right connections. I think actually what's more interesting to, about this to me is it's amazing how much uh, how difficult it is to really read people without seeing the mouth, the mouth. Yes. You know, true. even more so than the eyes. It, it is it's, it makes it tough to get a get a read on a, on a person. So um, I, I, I get it. I mean, look, I, I, you feel a lot of protection behind the mask to, I don't know what you're going to do besides buy booze, but yeah, you feel a lot of protection. I just think it's a cute, it's cute seeing all these kids dress up as old people. Um, to, to, are they successful? I think some of the time. Yeah. It seems like they've, there've been some successes. Uh, 
you know, this is a cute story until there's alcohol poisoning. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Underage people should not be drinking. I mean, I also, wasn't there a big story about how <laughs> underage people have been more successful at ordering alcohol now because all the rules have been loosened? Well, I mean, that's, it's just inevitable. Like, yeah, it's so like, what a great time to be a teen in a city. Well, especially because you can have look the door, the delivery people are should never be the front lines of deciding whether or not someone's old enough to no. drink. <laughs> but like, it's very it's, you know, you order food that is dropped off in front of your door. So even if you're like, yeah, comically young, which is hilarious. Like, oh, yeah. That you don't even have to see the person who, you know, is definitely not going to card you. Oh, yeah. Uh, we should mention that uh, there was huge uproar this week when the CEO of Goya publicly endorsed Trump and talked about what an honor it was to be in his presence. Uh, Ooh, yeah. There was a Yikes. flare up, you know, everyone uh-uh. publicly throwing up, pu- throwing up, publicly throwing out their uh, their Goya products saying, yeah. you know, what's interesting about this is Goya was like one of those brands that had a super cult following, you know, like people love Goya beans. So it, I feel like this was a shot to the heart for many a progressive. It was just an unforced error. By the guy. Don't do it, guy. You got a good thing going. You yeah. sell beans during a pandemic. Everybody loves you. Yeah. You know, everybody loves you. What are you doing? Just don't. So what do you think about this? Is, is this uh, is this part of the same wave of of uproar against? I think it's something that we've definitely seen the entire Trump presidency. Yeah. And probably before it. But it's definitely hit my radar then. I remember when like it wasn't cool to wear New Balances or you couldn't buy Under Armour because of what their leaders had said. And so I don't think it's new. I think what's especially tragic about it is just that they sell beans during the pandemic. You know, like bad timing for these guys. Yeah. All right. So I I have another thing I was thinking about outdoor dining that I didn't get to mention with Ryan, but I want to bring it up to you now that we're just like covering stray thoughts. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, right. Now that our structure has just fallen apart. Yeah. Dissolved. The problem with outdoor dining that we didn't get to talk about when we're talking about the ethics is just the logistics of it. Uh And in New York City, where I live, It kind of sucks to eat outside most of the time. July in New York, it's so humid. It's so humid. It's so hot. Uh, The only times you might want to eat outside is very late at night. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of rainstorms, surprise rainstorms. So going around New York, whenever it rains, I just see everybody like, grabbing their plates and scurrying close together, of course, under some awning or under an umbrella or just like waiting it out. And it's driving restaurateurs crazy. Also, the rats are more aggressive than ever this year because of COVID. I know this to be a fact. Yes. Because, right. It's the rats are not more aggressive because of COVID. The rats are more aggressive because food is more scarce because restaurants yes. are putting their trash outside because of COVID. Yes. The rats are hungrier and thus more aggressive because they don't have access to the same trash that they're used to. So the thing is, right. if you are dining... So if anyone ever wants to call us on not doing our due diligence, <laughs> just play that clip over again. <laughs> if you are dining outside, the only time that's good is like once the sun is setting, but then you only have like... a short window before the rats come out and the cockroaches come out. So it's not the most pleasant. Okay. But, but uh, that's gross. Um, is that real? Like, have you been sitting at a table and been like, Oh, there's lots more rats just waiting. I like what's going How do you feel the presence of the rats? I'm biased because I only know my area of Brooklyn, but I know that when you're walking around past nine o'clock in my part of Brooklyn, you will see a rat. And there's a restaurant where I talk to who's like, I have to wrap things up by nine because they'll see rats. So it's very, very anecdotal, but I don't think this is a one-off thing. And you know, rats in New York, yeah, they're huge. And they're, they're, they're gross. Yeah. They're, they're intense. I will counter everything I just said to say I had a magical evening on Saturday night. Yeah, tell me about this magical where, evening because you've talked about it. What is, so why was your evening it had, magical? It had just rained. It was very hot all day. It had just rained. Mm-hmm. So it cooled 
cooled everything off, was finally like a survivable temperature. Went to this the French cafe. Rats were cafe. busy with something else. Rats were somewhere else. Yeah. Went to this French cafe. Felt very Parisian. Lots of social distance. Everyone with the mask. Very romantic. Lightning bugs. Great wine. Great food. I felt like normal again. Like hmm. it brought me back to my old self. And was this like hour of peace. Can I tell you something uh, that I think is hilarious is uh, in Toronto, they're shutting down a few streets to give some tables to restaurants. Uh, We've never really talked about this, but there's certain outdoor tables that I feel like are just too much in walking traffic that I feel Mm -hmm. like always make me uncomfortable because I just I like to feel separated. I like to feel, you know, cut off from foot traffic. It's just I don't know. Some people like to be there and be like, hey, I'm eating, you know, this is my space on the sidewalk. I love that you. And I think I'm, I'm envious of those people. You're like, we've never talked about this as if it's a big secret of yours. Well, big, but it, 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 at some point in a doc, a I big had part written, of, yeah. let me talk mm-hmm. to Amanda about people who feel really confident in outdoor tables because they're like, okay. this is my space. Because people, some people want to be on display. They want right, yes, people true. to see them with their fancy sunglasses and whatever, just taking up a lot of space or like with their significant other that they're proud of. I mean, that's a good thing, I, mean, I guess. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's given way to this phenomenon of the of the random rogue table where it's just like pretty far from everything. And like if you look, if you have the right line of sight, you just see nothing restaurant related and then just like a random table in the middle of the street (laughs) just two people eating (laughs) yeah all right daniel i think we did it i think that's all we have for this week listeners we will be back next week with more we sure will amanda thanks so much for your time uh you know get out there get out by the uh inflatable pool i will and uh i don't know enjoy until the rats come out until the rats come out enjoy your life until the rats come out yep that's see you next week see you next week (laughs) support for this show comes from fundrise buy low sell high it's easy to say hard to do for example high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.